Hello, I'm Tony Collins and this is the Rugby Reloaded podcast. On Saturday, it was the 50th anniversary of the last time that Great Britain defeated Australia to win the Rugby League Ashes. So I thought I'd mark the occasion by telling the story of that historic series and discuss some of the reasons why no British team has repeated the feat since. Or in other words, look at why the Poms can't defeat the Aussies anymore. That 1972 was probably the most hostile in the history of rugby league contests between the two nations. Relations between Britain and Australia were changing. In the early 1960s, the British government applied to join the European common market without consulting the Australians, who were one of their biggest trade partners, and it also ended free entry to the UK for visiting Australians. Australia had begun to see itself less as part of the British Empire and started to assert its independence. In rugby league, the touring lions were no longer portrayed as friendly chums, but pommies, and more often than not, as whinging poms or even pommy bastards. So when the 1970 Lions arrived in Brisbane, they came face to face with these changing Australian attitudes. In the week before the first test, Malcolm Reilly, then Castleford's brilliant young loose forward, became the centre of tabloid controversy. He had been at a party where he had found himself continuously taunted as a pommy bastard. He punched the main perpetrator, who promptly called the police, but they decided that Malcolm had no case to answer. Even so, the Australian tabloids made him public enemy number one and the affair rumbled on throughout the tour. This may or may not have impacted on the Lions' preparation for the first test match in Brisbane. Despite being the bookies' favourites, the Lions failed to cope with the brutal Australian pack led by Artie Beetson. Within 25 minutes, Britain were 11 points down and went into the break 13-5 down. The second half was even worse and the Australians eventually cantered home by 37 points to 15. For the second Test match in Sydney, British coach Johnny Whiteley made seven changes to the team, most crucially bringing in Roger Millwood to replace Alan Hardesty at standoff. The impact was immediate, and just three minutes after the kickoff, Roger the Dodger collected a Malcolm Reilly bomb and went over for a try. The Lions never looked back, and despite being reduced to 12 men, they won 28 points to 7. Millwood himself finished with a 20-point haul, equaling the Ashes record. With the series now tied one all, on the 4th of July 1970, the Lions strode out onto the Sydney cricket ground to stake their claim to the Ashes. The match began with a string of penalties against the Lions, leaving them 6-2 down after just 12 minutes, but then the spirit of the second test roared back into life. Castleford prop Dennis Hartley charged down an Australian clearing kick and scored under the post. John Atkinson intercepted a wayward pass from Artie Bateson to race away to score and minutes later a great Malcolm Reilly grubber kick was gathered by Sid Hines for another try. The Lions went into the break 15-10 ahead. Atkinson scored another try soon after the break and on the hour Bateson was sent off for punching Cliff Watson. Seemingly down and out, Australia came back into the game with just four minutes to go. South Sydney's Bobby McCarthy romped over for a converted try that left the Aussies just one point down at 17-18. The Ashes were now hanging by a thread, but with less than two minutes left on the clock, Malcolm Reilly slipped out a pass to put Dougie Lawton in the clear. He passed to the supporting Roger Millwood, who raced 40 yards to claim the Ashes winning try. For a moment, TV commentator Eddie Waring became the fan on the terraces that he once was, and his voice cracked with emotion as Millward raced away to score. Millward, Millward, Millward! Eddie shouted. 
tour manager Jack Harding reported excitedly to the RFL Council that it was the greatest day, not only in my own, but Johnny Whiteley's and all the players' rugby lives. But British fans back in those days had to wait to see how the Ashes had been regained. In 1970, there was no live satellite television coverage of the tour, and rugby league fans, such as my eight-year-old self, had to be content with a 25-minute highlights package squeezed in between the athletics and show jumping on Saturday afternoon's grandstand, a week after the test match had actually been played. However, I didn't know then, nor did anyone else, that I would never see a British side win the Ashes again. So why has British rugby league fallen so far behind Australia? Before 1970, there was a relative balance. Both Britain and Australia had won the Ashes five times since 1950. Before 1950, Britain had almost completely dominated and Australia had won just two out of the 15 series. But since the year 2000, the British have only won three out of 23 meetings with Australia. For a useful comparison, it's worth comparing this with Rugby Union. The England Rugby Union team have only defeated the All Blacks four times in 19 meetings this century. In their entire history, they have only won eight of their 42 matches against New Zealand. Wales have only ever won three matches against them, Ireland two, and Scotland never. So a sense of perspective is important when looking at the Great Britain-Australia rivalry. In Rugby League, it's the shift in the overall balance of power between Britain and Australia that needs to be analysed. Huge changes in society and the nature of the game over the past 60 years have turned International Rugby League upside down. So, for example, the decline of industry in the north of England has meant that factory-based sports facilities have disappeared and with them went dozens of works rugby league teams. On the field, the introduction of limited tackle football in 1966-67 changed the nature of the game. The 1970 series was the only series that was played under the original four-tackle rule. It was changed to six in 1972. Britain's traditional success had been built on continuous forward domination, with ball-playing forwards passing the ball out of the tackle to the backs. But such dominance was impossible to build when the ball could only be held for six tackles. So the emphasis of rugby league switched to fitness and speed, qualities which the Australian game had always possessed. It wasn't until a new generation of British players emerged in the 1980s, such as Ellery Hanley, Andy Gregory and Gary Schofield, that that gap narrowed, but even they could not win back the Ashes. Fitness levels and even basic skills in England also lagged behind those down under. When Malcolm Reilly went on his first training run with Manley in 1970, he was shocked to find that he couldn't even keep up with the club secretary, Ken Arthurson. Conversely, many Australians who came to play in Britain in the 1980s were shocked by the poor tackling technique and lack of defensive know-how of their teammates. It wasn't just players. Australian coaches were less insular and learnt from other sports and other countries. Many of the innovations brought into the game by coaches like Jack Gibson and Warren Ryan were taken from American football. But the British game suffered from parochialism and an unwillingness to learn, a problem that was common to all British sports. There are also broader structural issues in British sport. Not least the fact that for every British player of international standard, the Australians had ten. Unlike in the north of England, rugby league dominated Australia's eastern seaboard. This gave it a huge pool of players, significant wealth, and because of the massive media interest, an intensity of competition which accustomed players to playing in high-pressure matches. In contrast, 
British Rugby League suffered from what could be called the Ryan Giggs problem. In 1960, the Football League abolished its maximum wage policy. Up until that point, the wage gap between the two games was not very large. For example, Liverpool and future England striker Roger Hunt earned just £22 per week in 1960, while in 1961, Ray French was paid £18 a week when he made his debut for St Helens. But the end of the maximum wage made soccer much more attractive. Manchester United player Michael Appleton played both league and soccer when he was growing up in Manchester, but he explained that, As a kid, I had offers in rugby league and football, but I couldn't turn down Manchester United. I was getting better at rugby league, and as a 16-year-old, I had a decision to make. But as soon as United came in, that was it. The best example of this problem is Ryan Giggs, whose father Danny Wilson played league for Swinton, and who himself played representative rugby league for the Lancashire Schoolboys team. In earlier times, Giggs may well have followed family tradition, but his soccer skills brought him a lucrative professional contract as a teenager and he was lost to rugby league. There's also one other reason why British teams have struggled so much against the Australians, and that comes down to psychology. The habit of losing over the past 50 years has become ingrained in the British game. Anybody who doubts that needs look no further than the 2003 Ashes series, in which Britain led each of the three matches going into the final 10 minutes, yet were incapable of closing each match out. You could almost sense the British players were thinking, how can we hang on? While the Kangaroos were thinking, how can we win this? Of course, none of this is to say that Britain can never defeat Australia again. Just look at how close the 2017 World Cup final was. And the success of British players in the NRL shows that individual players can match the best that Australia can produce. But the fact it has been generations since a series win over Australia demonstrates that the gap is not merely a matter of better coaching or player motivation. To really answer the question of why can't the Poms win any more, you have to ask how much Britain and Australia have changed over the past half century. And that yet again demonstrates that you can't understand sport if you don't understand society. I hope you've enjoyed listening to this episode of the Rugby Reloaded podcast. As I'm sure you know, my Twitter handle is at Collins Tony and my website is www.rugbyreloaded.com where you can find the show's complete archive and also read the show notes with links for this episode. Until next week, thanks for listening.